It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 33, War Without an Enemy. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my House of Lords, which has just been joined by Danielle Furlick, Countess of Bothwell. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Just go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we covered the spring campaigns of 1643 of Sir Thomas Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell. Fairfax, serving under his father, Lord Ferdinando Fairfax, in Yorkshire, achieved an incredible victory over the Royalist General Lord Goring. Fairfax had dodgy intel. Goring had twice the men and a defensive position in Wakefield. Fairfax emerged from the Battle of Wakefield with more than 1,400 prisoners, including Goring himself. For his part, Cromwell had far less flashy successes. A couple of minor sieges, and a skirmish with royalists where he too was outnumbered. But Cromwell learnt well from these experiences. Both Fairfax and Cromwell would soon become far more than just a couple of cavalry officers. We also saw the Earl of Montrose try and fail to convince the king that he had to be proactive in Scotland, to give permission to royalists to rise up against the Covenanters. The Duke of Hamilton won that argument, urging peace and reconciliation with Edinburgh. We'll see how well that works out in good time. But first, back in England, Parliament was busy. On the 23rd of May, 1643, they finally did what Charles I had feared they'd do back before he fled London. The Commons drew up articles of impeachment to charge the Queen with high treason. The Queen was charged with conspiring with foreign powers, bringing arms into the kingdom, and levying war against the Parliament. That she'd done all of this on behalf of her husband, the King, and that treason was a crime against the King, was put aside. 
As we've seen with earlier impeachments, most notably with the Earl of Strafford, the strict definition of treason was no longer being applied by Parliament. Treason was no longer just a personal offence against the sovereign, but was becoming a more nebulous crime against the kingdom and people of England. The fact that she was queen was no defence. One MP, Henry Martin, told Parliament that they should not fear the dignity of her person, for he knew of no person so high, he accepted none, but was subject to the law. Huh. No one, no matter how highly placed, was immune to the law, and treason no longer just a crime against the person of the monarch? Well, that opens up the crazy idea that the king could be charged with treason. Imagine that. Henrietta Maria's popularity wasn't helped by her Catholicism. The large minority of Catholics serving in Newcastle's northern army, and her tendency to view herself as the moral leader of that army, didn't help Protestant fears. When her correspondence with the Earl of Antrim was captured along with the man himself, that just fanned the flames of conspiracy. Which is understandable, those letters contained actual conspiracy. Parliament duly summoned Henrietta Maria de Bourbon, Queen of England, Scotland and Ireland, to appear before them to answer the charges. Obviously, that wasn't going to happen, but there were forms to at least try and follow with these things. Though now I wonder if anyone genuinely thought she might. Anyway, in June, the Queen ended her stay in York, and led her escort and the rest of her supplies down, not to London, to appear before Parliament, but to Oxford, to appear before her husband. She made it to Oxford without a problem, with royalist forces, including Prince Rupert of the Rhine, guarding her flanks against the parliamentarian forces which had been sent to intercept her. In the southwest, Sir Ralph Hopton finally broke out of Cornwall after months of campaigning. The Earl of Stamford, the parliamentary commander in the region, had received intelligence that Hopton was due to rendezvous with Prince Maurice. Stamford was determined to stop that happening and to destroy the Royalist army in Cornwall and bring the county over to Parliament once and for all. He pulled every available man, horse and cannon into his army and marched into Cornwall. When Hopton learnt of this advance, he mustered what troops he could, his army was spread across the county, and marched to meet him. They met at Stratton, on the north coast of Cornwall. Hopton was outnumbered more than two to one, Stamford's men were positioned in defensive earthworks atop a hill. Aware that more reinforcements were en route to join Stamford, and that his position would get even worse then, Hopton and his officers agreed to attack. At the Battle of Stratton, Hopton used the local knowledge of his officers to lead his men in a night march and attacked the parliamentarian lines at five in the morning. They used one of Hopton's favourite tactics. Multiple columns of troops converging from multiple directions. It was tricky to pull off. It required trust and cooperation among the officers. But when it worked, it could overwhelm the defender. The fighting went on for more than ten hours. When his ammunition reserves began to run out around three in the afternoon, Hopton didn't tell his men. Instead, he ordered one final push with his musketeers ordered to hold their fire until they reached the top of the hill. In the desperate fighting that followed, one of Stamford's subcommanders was captured, 
and this was the final straw for the parliamentarian morale. The line collapsed. Hopton had won. 300 parliamentarians were killed, another 1,700 were captured, and 13 pieces of artillery were now in royalist hands. Last week, when covering the Fairfax's capture of Wakefield, I quoted Ian Gentle's biography of Fairfax, where he stated, No victory against such heavy odds was won by any other general during the whole Civil War. That might be true, but I think a case can be made for Hopton's victory at Stratton. In the aftermath of the battle, a large number of parliamentarian soldiers managed to escape. Hopton was still awaiting the arrival of Stamford's reinforcements, and he didn't want them to appear as his men were eagerly chasing down prisoners. But aside from that, Hopton could feel very pleased with himself. Stratton had secured Cornwall for the king, and Stamford, humbled and facing accusations of incompetence, could only watch from Exeter's walls as Hopton marched across Devon and joined up with Prince Maurice on the 4th of June. Devon was still for Parliament, but the unified Hopton-Maurice force was 7,000 men strong and in a position to do some real damage to the Western Association army commanded by Sir William the Conqueror Waller. We'll return to Hopton and Waller shortly. The parliamentarian cause was struck with serious issues around this time. Some of this was personal. The Earl of Essex, Lord General of Parliament's armies, had been passive since his capture of Reading earlier in the year. Essex, ever proud, as listeners of the bonus content on his life will appreciate, didn't like the fact that his authority was being questioned by his subordinates, especially Waller and the Earl of Manchester, soon to be commander of the Eastern Association Army. Waller especially tended to take Essex's orders as guidelines or suggestions, often fulfilling the word but not the spirit of the orders, or just ignoring them entirely. For example, aware of the danger if Maurice and Hopton linked up, Essex ordered Waller to Somerset to prevent this. Waller arrived in Somerset, hung around for a few days, and then left. He went off to try and capture Worcester. He failed, and Hopton and Maurice met up without difficulty. When the Queen left York, Essex ordered forces to intercept her convoy, but they dragged their feet, and the convoy managed to pass without much trouble. To say that Essex's command and control was inefficient undersells it quite a bit. Adding salt to this wound was the fact that Essex's army, meant to be the main field army of the parliamentary cause, was limited to around 10,000 men. Meanwhile, the Eastern Association Army, for example, climbed as high as 21,000 men, with the happy consent of Parliament. Piling more salt into the wound, Essex's army was rampant with desertion, as men and officers decided that they'd better prospects, either in pay or promotion, by joining up with one of Essex's subordinates. At least, those that didn't decide they wanted off the battlefield entirely, and there were many of those too. Their pay was months late, and disease and malnutrition was endemic in his ranks. Essex was not the only one resentful at his comrades. His comrades were resentful of him. His apparent unwillingness to effectively pursue victory, his failure to capitalise on the capture of Reading and to threaten Oxford, 
led some to suspect that he was positioning himself for a place in the post-war royalist administration. He claimed his priority was keeping the King's army from marching on London, but many of his officers, and in Parliament, were openly questioning his motivation and capabilities as a commander. But this was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Lipscomb doesn't hold back in his criticism of Essex as a commander, but he does give the Earl credit. He wanted to act, but he was cautious by nature, and he was aware that any actions he took would spur the king to act against him, and he needed support from his subordinates. So when he called for a concentration of forces in Oxfordshire, in order for him to advance on Oxford with sufficient numbers, his officers hardly flocked to his banners, so he couldn't do anything, further giving the impression of incompetence and diminishing his authority, which meant he could do even less, etc., etc. The failure of overall command can be seen in the gathering of Eastern Association forces at Nottingham. The Council of Officers, including Cromwell, Gell, and Hotham Jr., debated whether to march to the aid of the Fairfaxes, or to try and intercept the Queen's convoy. Without firm leadership, they debated and debated, and they lost the chance to do either. In the meantime, their soldiers plundered the surrounding area. Cromwell was furious with everyone. With the men for their behaviour, for officers like Hotham who permitted it, and with his commanding officers for failing to command. Hotham was the son of John Hotham, the governor of Hull we've seen so much of, and his correspondence with leading royalists, not least the Earl of Newcastle and Henrietta Maria, cast suspicion on his loyalties. Similar suspicion was levied at his father, and for good reason. Both Hothams had been, and still were, open to defection. And when this came out at Nottingham, both Cromwell and another officer had the younger Hotham arrested and imprisoned in the castle. He protested, of course, and wrote a letter to Parliament insisting that he was loyal to the cause, was no traitor, and would never, ever treat with the Royalists. After dashing off that letter, he wrote another one, this time to the Queen, begging her to order his rescue and promising the surrender of both Hull and Lincoln to the King. Soon, though, Hotham Jr. escaped the castle by his own wits and the incompetence of the guards, and he rode straight to Lincoln to make good his offer to the Queen. Here he tried to persuade the governor to join his plot, before racing on to Hull to meet with dear old Dad. He got there on the 28th of June, just in time for both he and his father to be arrested by Parliament. Both men were imprisoned, as the evidence against them only got stronger. They'd both been prolific letter-writers, and they spelled out all their negotiations with the Royalists. Let's just fast forward. Both Hothams would sit in the Tower of London until they were tried by court-martial in December 1644. Found guilty and sentenced to death, Hotham Jr. was beheaded on Tower Hill on New Year's Day 1645. His father followed the day after. And that is the end of the Hothams. Back to the Civil War. On the 30th of June, the Fairfaxes and Newcastle finally met in battle at Ardwalton Moor. It appears that both armies had decided to march on the other at roughly the same time, and both were surprised to find their enemy doing the same. 
The battle was a stark defeat for the parliamentarians, and it ended the little pocket of territory they controlled in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Bradford surrendered just days afterwards, with other key towns falling quickly after. Both Fairfaxes managed to escape to Hull, where the elder Fairfax took over as governor from the deposed and arrested Hotham. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. A few weeks earlier, on the 10th of June, Prince Rupert received intelligence that a large pay chest was escorted by parliamentarian cavalry, and he led 2,000 mostly mounted men to go and help the escorts carry it. He caught the escorts mostly unawares, though the wagon containing the money was successfully hidden. After taking more than a hundred prisoners and accepting that the chest was gone, Rupert ordered a return to Oxford, but the rest of the parliamentary force chased them. The following skirmish was brutal. Again, we see Rupert's emotions get the better of him. He was following a plan to lure the enemy into a trap, when some of their dragoons shot at his men. Furious at this, how dare they shoot on a battlefield, he reportedly said, This insolency is not to be endured, then spurred his horse and charged straight into the dragoons, with his lifeguard hurriedly trying to catch up. Now that's a battle cry. Both forces became fully engaged and went about their grim work. Fairly quickly, the parliamentarians broke and ran, and Rupert, for once, showed an awareness of the overall situation and reined his men in from chasing too far. The prince returned to Oxford with 200 prisoners, though not the pay chest. 
Six days later, Rupert's raid claimed another victory. John Hamden, one of the greatest thorns in Charles's side, defendant in the Hamden ship money case, and now a leader of the parliamentarian cause, was shot by two musket balls in the fighting. He made it off the battlefield, but his wounds festered, and he died after almost a week of agony. The Royalists might have felt some grim satisfaction at the death of Hamden. He was, after all, both cause and example of the breakdown between King and Parliament. But while it might not have seemed it, Hamden was a moderating influence on Parliament. His loss, the silencing of his voice, would have serious ramifications. It goes without saying, but Rupert's raid did nothing to help Essex's reputation as a commander. And when it was followed a week later by another raid, this time very close to London itself, Parliament had had enough. John Pym, notorious arsehole, sent a letter to Essex making it very clear that his army's performance was just not good enough. Essex took these criticisms well, accepting their wisdom. What am I saying? No, he didn't. Of course he didn't. He offered his resignation. But Essex was not so out of favour that his resignation was wanted, and he probably knew that. Parliament rejected it out of hand, and began to pay attention to the Lord General's complaints. Pay was allocated to his men, new recruits and reinforcements were sent his way. Down in the southwest, Hopton and Maurice's unified force marched out of Devon and into Somerset. Hopton was chosen as the overall commander, despite the difference in social rank. They needed the Cornish soldiers to stay on campaign outside of their home county, and their respect for Hopton was hoped to be enough to keep them. On the 12th of June, Hopton's scouts got into a skirmish with the troops of Sir William Waller. This was a moment of great personal difficulty for both Hopton and Waller, because they were friends. They'd served in the Thirty Years' War as brothers-in-arms. They'd served in Parliament together. Now they found themselves on different sides. Neither relished the idea of killing each other in a civil war. They didn't want to be fighting at all. Hopton wrote to Waller, apparently trying to use their friendship to avoid conflict. Waller's response is one of the most famous pieces of correspondence in the entire English Civil War. To my noble friend Sir Ralph Hopton at Wells. Sir, the experience I have of your worth and the happiness I have enjoyed in your friendship are wounding considerations when I look at this present distance between us. Certainly my affection to you is so unchangeable that hostility itself cannot violate my friendship, but I must be true wherein the cause I serve. That great God, which is the searcher of my heart, knows with what a sad sense I go about this service, and with what a perfect hatred I detest this war without an enemy. But I look upon it as an opus domini, and that is enough to silence all passion in me. The God of peace, in his good time, will send us peace. In the meantime, we are upon the stage, and must act those parts that are assigned to us in this tragedy. Let us do so in a way of honour, and without personal animosities. Whatever the outcome, I will never willingly relinquish the title of your most affectionated friend, William Waller. The two armies, led by two friends, fought at the Battle of Lansdowne on the 5th of July. 
It was hard fought, but Hopton's royalists emerged victorious. It was a very costly victory. His infantry, spearheaded by his Cornish regiments, advanced up a hill into withering musket and cannon fire. By nightfall, hundreds of Hopton's soldiers lay dead, but in the darkness, Waller withdrew his army, and Lansdowne was, technically, a royalist victory. The next day, to really make Hopton regret ever leaving Cornwall, an ammunition cart in his camp exploded. Hopton and many of his officers had been inspecting a group of prisoners who were sat on the cart, when one of them, who had a match for tobacco, lit it. Whether this was a moment of monumental stupidity, or deliberate martyrdom is unknown, the man responsible was definitely not in a position to answer any questions. Several officers were killed outright, more were wounded, including Hopton. He was badly burnt, and he lost his sight, though only temporarily. For now, it was decided that after their casualties, and with the loss of most of their gunpowder, the army would march to Oxford. Waller had other ideas. When he heard the news of the royalist difficulties, and getting half blown up by your own supplies is definitely a difficulty, he gathered reinforcements and chased after the royalists. Waller caught up with Hopton on the 9th, outside of Chippenham, and forced them to the town of Devizes. He formed up his army, and Hopton was left to call a council of war. Hopton must have been in agony, but he was conscious, though confined to a chair. It was agreed that Maurice would lead all their cavalry on a mad rush to Oxford to demand reinforcements from the king. Hopton would stay at Devizes and hold it with his infantry and artillery for as long as he could. The cavalry broke through the incomplete siege lines and escaped before the noose firmly tightened on the 11th. Waller sent his own messenger after them to get to Essex and request that he send a force to intercept the royalists. This message reached Essex far too late. By the time Maurice reached Oxford, he found that two separate parties had already been dispatched. One was a supply of ammunition, escorted by 600 cavalry, and another was a brigade of horse under Lord Wilmot. Maurice filled in the royalist command with the latest information, before setting off with even more reinforcements. Waller intercepted and captured the ammunition supply, and he taunted his friend with this news and begged him to surrender. Hopton delayed, dragging out the negotiations as long as he could, but Waller was no idiot, and he knew his friend, and he was well aware what he was doing. On the 12th of July, he ordered a full-scale assault on the town. The attack succeeded in driving the royalists away from their defences, and Waller prepared another attack for the next day to finish the job. But then, news arrived of the reinforcements, and Waller wouldn't get another chance. The Battle of Roundway Down was a decisive defeat for Waller and the Western Association Army. Waller's general of horse, Arthur Hazelrig, commanded one of the few armoured cavalry contingents on the Civil War battlefield. His fully armoured cuirassiers, nicknamed the Lobsters, charged into the Royalist cavalry. Soon, however, the Parliamentarian horse, who were using the Dutch formation, were overwhelmed by the wider flanks of the Royalist Swedish formations, and they broke fleeing down a steep slope and causing many of them to stumble and be crushed. They left their infantry behind, who now had to contend with the arrival of Hopton's infantry, 
who had left the safety of divisors and now fell on them. Flanked and surrounded by the royalist cavalry, the infantry soon broke too, and the battle was over. In the aftermath of Roundway Down, Bath was abandoned by the parliamentarians, and Rupert was dispatched by Charles to go and seize Bristol for the king. Colonel Nathaniel Fiennes was its governor, and he rejected Rupert's demand to surrender out of hand. But Rupert, noting the incomplete defences and the small garrison, ordered a full assault on the city walls. After a day of bombardment, the attack began on the 26th. It was brutal fighting, with multiple assaults failing with massive casualties. But once a foothold was gained, Fines viewed the situation as hopeless. Believing Essex's reinforcements to be too far away, and, he said, wanting to preserve the lives of his men and the property of the city from further violence, he surrendered. Bristol fell to the king. Fines was condemned as a coward and a traitor, and I mean that literally. He faced court-martial and was condemned to death. And it was only due to the influence of his father, Lord Say and Seal, that he was spared execution by Essex. He'd never be trusted with command again. If you're a subscriber to the History Scotland magazine, if you go to the exclusive content section of their website, you'll find a short interview of me, talking about Pax Britannica, why I think it's so successful, spoiler, the listeners, and what's coming in 2022 for the podcast. If you aren't a subscriber, it's really great value for money if you're interested in Scottish history, and considering how much Scottish history is in Pax, you probably are. Go to HistoryScotland.com to find out more. On a more personal note, it's been a very grim year for a lot of people. I hope that everyone who wants to see friends and family over the festive period can do so, and my heart goes out to those who can't, and those who will have empty seats. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.